The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close by Joseph A. Altscheller The eighth and final volume of the Civil War series Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 14, The Mountain Sharpshooter Colonel Winchester's own mellow whistle finally recalled his men, as he did not wish them to become scattered among the mountains in pursuit of detached guerrillas. Although the escape of both Slade and Skelly was a great disappointment, the victory nevertheless was complete. The two leaders could not rally the brigand force again, because it had ceased to exist. Nearly half caught between the jaws of the Union vice, had fallen, and most of the others were taken. Perhaps not more than fifty had got away, and they would be lucky if they were not captured by the mountaineers. Dick's head was bound up hastily but skillfully by Sergeant Whitley and Shepard. Slade's bullet had merely cut under the hair a little, and the bandage stopped the flow of blood. The sting, too, left, or in his triumph he did not notice it. His elation, in truth, was great, as he had succeeded in carrying out the hardest part of a difficult and delicate operation. As he led his men back toward the valley, their prisoners driven before them, he felt no weariness from his great exertions, and both his head and his feet were light. At the rim of the valley, Colonel Winchester met him, shook his hand with great heartiness, and congratulated him on his success, and Warner and Pennington, who were wholly without envy, added their own praise. "'I think it will be Captain Mason before long,' said Warner. "'Lots of boys under twenty are captains, and some are colonels. Your right to promotion is a mathematical certainty, and I can demonstrate it with numerous formula from the little algebra, which even now is in the inside pocket of my tunic.' "'Don't draw on the algebra!' exclaimed Pennington. "'We take your word for it, of course.' "'I shouldn't want to be a captain,' said Dick sincerely, "'unless you fellows became captains, too.' Further talk was interrupted by the necessity for care in making the steep descent into the valley, where the fires were blazing anew from the fresh wood which the young soldiers in their triumph had thrown upon the coals. Nor did Colonel Winchester and his senior officers make any effort to restrain them, knowing that a little exultation was good for youth, after deeds well done. It was still snowing lazily, but the flames from a dozen big fires filled the valley with light and warmth, and illuminated the sullen faces of the captives. They were a sinister lot, arrayed in faded Union or Confederate uniforms, the refuse of highland and lowland, gathered together for robbery and murder, under the protecting shadow of war. Their hair was long and unkempt, their faces unshaven and dirty, and they watched their captors with the restless, evasive eyes of guilt. They were herded in the center of the valley, and Colonel Winchester did not hesitate to bind the arms of the most evil-looking. "'What are you going to do with us?' asked one bold, black-browed villain. "'I'm going to take you to General Sheridan,' replied the colonel. "'I'm glad I don't have the responsibility of deciding your fate, but I think it very likely he'll hang some of you,' and that all of you richly deserve it. The man muttered savage oaths under his breath, 
and the colonel added, Meanwhile, you'll be surrounded by at least fifty guards with rifles of the latest style, rifles that can shoot very fast, and they are instructed to use them if you make the slightest sign of an attempt to escape. I warn you that they will obey with eagerness. The man ceased his mutterings, and he and the other captives cowered by the fire, as if their blood had suddenly grown so thin that they must almost touch the coals to secure warmth. Then Colonel Winchester ordered the cooks to prepare food and coffee again for his troopers, who had done so well, while a surgeon, with amateur but competent assistance, attended to the hurt. While they ate and drank and basked in the heat, the mountaineer, Reed, came again to Colonel Winchester. Dick, who was standing by, observed his air of deep satisfaction, and he wondered again at the curious mixture of mountain character, its strong religious strain, mingled with its merciless hatred of a foe. He knew that much of Reed's great content came from his slaying of the two traitors, but he did not feel that he had a right, at such a time, to question the man's motives and actions. Colonel, said Reed, it's lucky that my men brought along plenty of axes, and that your men, as well as mine, know how to use them. Why so, Mr. Reed? Because it's growing warmer. But that doesn't hurt us. We're certainly not asking for more cold. It will hurt us if we don't take some shelter again it. It's snowing now, Colonel, and if it gets a little warmer, it'll turn to rain, and it can rain powerful hard in these mountains. Thank you for calling my attention to it, Mr. Reed. I can't afford to have the troops soaked by winter rains. Not knowing what we had to expect in the mountains, I fortunately ordered about twenty of my own men to bring axes at their saddlebows. We'll put them all at work. In a few minutes, thirty good axemen were cutting down trees, saplings, and bushes, and more than a hundred others were strengthening the lean-tos, thatching roofs, and making rude but serviceable floors. Dick, owing to his slight wound, but much against his wish, was ordered into the house, where he spread his blankets near a window, although he could not yet sleep, all the heat of the battle and pursuit not having left him. His nerves still tingling with excitement, he stood at the window and looked out. He saw the great fire blazing, and many persons passing and repassing before the red glow. He saw the captives crouching together, and the red gleam on the bayonets of the men who guarded them. He saw Warner and Pennington go into one of the lean-tos, and he saw Colonel Winchester, accompanied by Shepard and the sergeant, go down the valley toward the exit. After a while, the prisoners moved to the lean-tos, and then everybody took shelter. The crackle of the big fires changed to a hiss, and more smoke arose from them. The reason was obvious. The big flakes of snow had ceased to fall, and big drops of rain were falling in their place. Reed had been a true prophet, and he had not given his warning too soon. The rain increased. Dick heard it driving on the window panes and beating on the roof. All the fires in the valley were out now, and rising mists and vapors hid nearly everything. The faint, sliding sound of more snowfalls precipitated by the rain came to his ears. He realized suddenly how fine a thing it was to be inside four walls, and with it came a great feeling of comfort. It was the same feeling that he had known often in childhood, when he lay in his bed and heard the storm beat against the house. 
There were others in the room. The floor was almost covered with them, but all of them were asleep already, and Dick, wrapping himself in his blanket, joined them, the last thing that he remembered being the swish of the rain against the glass. He slept heavily and was not awakened until nearly noon, when he saw through the window a world entirely changed. The rain had melted only a portion of the snow, and when it ceased after sunrise, the day had turned much colder, freezing everything hard and tight. The surface of the valley, slopes and ridges, was covered with a thick armor of ice, smooth as glass, and giving back the rays of a brilliant sun in colors as vivid and varied as those of a rainbow. Every tree and bush, to the last little twig, was sheathed also in silver, and along the slopes the forests of dwarfed cedar and pines were a vast field of delicate and complex tracery. It was a glittering and beautiful world, but cold and merciless. Dick saw at once that the whole force, captors and captured, were shut in for the time. It was impossible for horses to advance over a field of ice, and it was too difficult even for men to be considered seriously. There was nothing to do but remain in the valley until circumstances allowed them to move, and reflection told him they would not lose much by it. They had done the errand on which they were sent, and there was little work left in the great valley itself. The big fires had been lighted again, the cove furnishing wood enough for many days, and within its limited area they brought back glow and cheeriness. Dick went outside and found all the men in high spirits. They expected to be held there until a thaw came, but there would be no difficulty except to obtain forage for the horses, which they must dig from under the snow, or which some of the surest-footed mountaineers must bring over the ridge. He heard that Colonel Winchester was already making arrangements with Reed, and he was too light-hearted to bother himself any more about it. Warner and Pennington saluted him with bows as a coming captain, and declared that he looked extremely interesting with a white bandage around his head. "'It's merely to prevent bleeding,' said Dick. "'The bullet didn't really hurt me, and it won't leave a scar under the hair.' "'Then since you're not even an invalid,' said Pennington, "'come on and take your bath. "'The boys have broken the ice for a long distance on the creek, "'and all of us early risers have gone there for a plunge and a short swim. "'It'll do you a world of good, Dick, but don't stay in too long.' "'Not over half an hour,' said Warner.' "'Oh, a quarter of an hour will be long enough,' said Pennington. "'But I'd advise you to rub yourself down thoroughly, Dick.' "'I'll do just as you did,' laughed Dick. "'And what's that?' "'I'll go to the edge of the creek, look at it, "'and shiver when I see how cold its waters are. "'Then I'll kneel down on the bank, bathe my face, and come away.' "'You've estimated him correctly, Dick,' said Warner. "'But you don't have to shiver as much as Frank did.' The cold bath, although it was confined to the face only, made his blood leap and sparkle. He was not a coming captain, but a boy again, and he began to think about pleasant ways of passing the time while the ice held them. After his breakfast, he joined Colonel Winchester, who debated the question further with a group of officers. But there was only one conclusion to which they could come, and that had presented itself already to Dick's mind, namely to wait as patiently as they could for a thaw, 
while Shepard, the sergeant, and two or three others made their way on foot into the Shenandoah Valley to inform Sheridan of what had transpired. The messengers departed as soon as the conference closed, and the little army was left to pass the time as it chose in the cove. But time did not weigh heavily upon the young troops. As it grew colder and colder, they added to the walls and roofs of their improvised shelters. There was scarcely a man among them who had not been bred to the axe, and the forest in the valley rang continually with their skillful strokes. Then the logs were notched, and in a day or two rude but real cabins were raised, in which they slept, dry and warm. The fires outside were never permitted to die down. The flames always leaped up from the great beds of coals, and warmth and the comforts that follow were diffused everywhere. The lads, when they were not working on the houses, mended their saddles and bridles or their clothes, and when they had nothing else to do, they sang war songs or the sentimental ballads of home. It was a fine place for singing. Warner described the acoustics of the valley as perfect, and the ridges and gorges gave back the greatest series of echoes any of them had ever heard. "'If this place didn't have a name already,' said Pennington, "'I'd call it Echo Cove, and the echoes are flattering, too. "'Whatever George sings, his voice always comes back in highly improved tones, "'something that we can stand very well.' "'My voice may not be as mellow as Mario's,' said Warner calmly, "'but my technique is perfect.' Music is chiefly an affair of mathematics, as everybody knows, or at least it is eighty percent, the rest being voice, a mere gift of birth. So, as I am unassailable in mathematics, I'm a much better singer than the common and vulgar lot who merely have voice. That being the case, said Pennington, you should sing for yourself only, and admire your own wonderful technique. I never sing unless I'm asked to do so, said Warner with his old invincible calm, and then the competent few who have made an exhaustive study of this most complex science appreciate my achievement. As I said, I should consider it a mark of cheapness if I please the low, vulgar, and common herd. With that iron face and satisfied mind of yours, you ought to go far, George, said Pennington. Everything is arranged already. I will go far, said Warner in even tones. I wonder what's happening outside, in the big valley, said Dick. Whatever it is, it's happening without us, said Warner. But I fancy that General Sheridan will be more uneasy about us than we are about him. We know what we have done, that our task is finished. But for all he knows, we may have been trapped and destroyed. But Shepard or the sergeant will get through to him. Not for three or four days, anyhow. Not even men on foot can travel fast on a glassy sheet of ice. Every time I look at it on the mountain, it seems to grow smoother. If I were standing on top of that ridge and were to slip, I'd come like a catapult clear into the camp. Nothing could tempt me to go up there now, said Dick. Maybe not, nor me either, but as I live, somebody is on top of that ridge now. Dick's eyes followed his pointing finger saw a black dot on the utmost summit, and then he snatched up his glasses. "'It's Slade, his very self!' he exclaimed in excitement. "'I'd know that hat anywhere. Now, how under the sun did he come there?' 
It's more important to know why he has come, said Warner, using his own glasses. I see him clearly, and there is no doubt that it's the same robber, traitor, and assassin who, unfortunately, escaped when we shot his horde to pieces. He has a rifle with him, and as sure as we live, he's sitting down on the ice and picking out a target here in the valley. A risky business for Slade. Shooting upward, we can take better aim at him than he can at us. There was a great stir in the valley, as others saw the figure on the mountain and read Slade's intentions. Fifty men sprang to their feet and seized their rifles. But the gorilla moved swiftly along the knife edge of the ridge, obviously sure of his footing, and before any of them could fire, dropped down behind a little group of cedars. Every stem and branch was cased in a sheath of silver mail, but they hid him well. Dick, with his glasses, could not discern a single outline of the man behind the glittering tracery. But as they looked, a head of red appeared suddenly in the silver, smoke floated away, and a bullet knocked up the ice near them. They scattered in a lively fashion, and from shelter watched the silver bush. A second bullet came from its foliage, and wounded slightly a man who was carrying wood to one of the fires. But the annoying sharpshooter remained invisible. "'He's lying down on the ice, like a Sioux or Cheyenne in a gully,' said Pennington. "'Maybe he has a gully in the ice,' said Dick, "'and he can crouch here and shoot at us all day, almost in perfect safety.' But Colonel Winchester appeared and ordered a score of the men, with the heaviest rifles, to shoot away the entire clump of cedars. They did it with a method and a regard for mathematics that filled Warner's soul with delight, firing in turn and planting their bullets in a line along the front of the clump, cutting down everything like a mower with a scythe. Dick, with the glasses, saw the ice fly into the air in a silver spray as bush after bush fell. Presently, they were all cut away by that stream of heavy bullets, but no human being was disclosed. "'He's just gone over the other side of the ridge,' said Warner in disgust, "'and is waiting there until we finish. "'We couldn't shoot through a mountain, even if we had one of our biggest cannon here. "'He'll find another clump of bushes soon and be potting us from it.' "'But we can shoot that away, too,' said Dick hopefully. "'We can't shoot down all the forests on the mountain.' He must have heavy hobnails, or, like the mountaineers, he has drawn thick yarn socks over his boots, else he couldn't scoot about on the ice the way he does. Ah, there goes his rifle, behind the clump of bushes to the right of the one that we shot away. A second man was wounded by the bullet, and then an extraordinary siege ensued. A siege of three hundred men by a single sharpshooter on top of a mountain as smooth as glass. Whenever they shot his refuge away, he moved to another, and while they were shooting at it, he had nothing to do but drop down a few feet on the far side of the ridge and remain in entire safety until he chose another ambush. I suppose this was visited upon us because we were puffed up with pride over our exploits, said Pennington, but it's an awful jolt to us to have the whole Winchester Regiment penned up here and driven to hiding by a single brigand. "'It's not a jolt,' said Warner. "'It's a tragedy. "'Unless we get him, we can never live it down. "'We may win another Gettysburg all by ourselves, 
But history, and also the voice of legend and ironic song, will tell first of the time when Slade the outlaw held us all in the cove at the muzzle of his rifle. Colonel Winchester, although he did not show it, raged the most of them all. The great taunt would be for him rather than his young officers and troopers, and the blood burned in his veins as he watched the operations of the sharpshooter on the ridges. One of his men had been killed, three had been wounded, and all of them were compelled to seek shelter for their lives, as none knew where Slade's bullet would strike next. In his perplexity, he called in Reed, the mountaineer, who fortunately was in camp, and he suggested that they send out a group of men through the entrance, who might stalk him from the far side in the same way that they had crushed his band. "'But how are they to climb on the smooth ice?' asked the colonel. "'Wrap the feet of the men in blankets, and let them use their bayonets for a grip in the ice,' replied the mountaineer. "'And if you don't mind, colonel, I'd like to go along with the party. Maybe I'd get a shot at that big hat of slaves.' The idea appealed to the colonel, especially as none other offered, and Warner, to his great delight, received command of the party detailed for the difficult and dangerous duty. Several of the coarsest and heaviest blankets were cut up, and the feet of the men were wrapped in them in such manner that they would not slip on the ice, although retaining full freedom of movement. They tried their snowshoes behind the house, where they were sheltered from Slade's bullets, and found that they could make good speed over the ice. "'Now, be careful, Warner,' said Colonel Winchester. "'Remember that your party also may present a fair target to him, "'and we don't wish to lose another man.' "'I'll use every precaution possible, sir,' replied Warner, "'and I thank you for giving me this responsibility.' "'Then, keeping to the shelter of trees, "'he led his men out through the pass, "'and the soul of Warner, despite his calm exterior, was aflame.' Dick had achieved his great task with success, and, in the lesser one, he wished to do as well. It was not jealousy of his comrade, but emulation, and also a desire to meet his own exacting standards. As he disappeared with his picked sharpshooters and turned the shoulder of the mountain, his blood was still hot, but his Vermont head was as cool as the ice upon which he trod. Warner heard the distant reports of Slade's rifle, and also the crackle of the firing in reply. He knew that the colonel would keep Slade so busy that he was not likely to notice the flank movement, and he pressed forward with all the energy of himself and his men. The heavy cloth around their shoes gave them a secure foothold until they reached the steeper slopes, and there, in accordance with Reed's suggestion, they used their bayonets as alpenstocks. A third of the way up the slope, and they reached one of the clumps of cedars into which they crawled. Although a glittering network of silver, it was a cold covert, but they lay on the ice there and watched for Slade's next shot. Then they heard it a minute later and saw him behind a pine about five hundred yards away. After sending his bullet into the valley, he had withdrawn a little and was slipping another cartridge into the fine breech-loading rifle that he carried the most modern and highly improved weapon then used, as Warner could clearly see. "'Would you let me take a look at him through your glasses?' asked Reed. "'Certainly,' replied Warner, handing them to him. "'Just as I thought,' said Reed, as he took a long look. "'He's done gone plumb mad with the wish to kill.' 
It strikes them evil-minded critters that way sometimes. And he's had so much luck shooting down at us and keeping a whole little army besieged that it's mounted to his head. If he had his way, he'd just wipe us all out. A sanguinary and savage mind, said Warner. It's the spirit of the rattlesnake or the cobra, and we must exterminate him. He's moving further along the ridge, and he's exactly between us and that clump of cedars, higher up and about 300 yards away. If we could make those cedars, we could bring him within range. It's a pretty steep climb, but I want to try it. We can do it sure by stabbing our bayonets into the ice and hanging on to them as we edge up, said Reed optimistically. The clump itself will help hide us, and Slade ain't likely to look this way. As I told you, he has gone plumb mad with the blood fever, and he ain't got eyes for anything except the soldiers in the valley, what he wants to shoot. Poison, nothing but poison, said Warner. We must remove him as speedily as possible for the sake of the universe. Come on, I mean to lead. He emerged from the clump and took his way toward the second cluster, digging a heavy hunting knife into the ice whenever he felt that he was about to slip. Reed was just behind him, breathing hard from the climb, and then came the whole detachment. Warner felt a momentary shiver, lest the gorilla see them. If he caught them on the steep ice between the two cedar clumps, he could decimate them with ease. But fortune was kind, and they breathed mighty sighs of relief as they drew into the second network of silver, where they lay close watching for Slade, who had fired three times into the valley, while they were on the way. He had gone farther down the ridge, but they saw him partially as he kneeled for another shot. If he moved again in the same direction after firing, they would not be able to reach him, and Warner, Reed agreeing with him, decided that they must make the attempt to remove him now or never. It was a hard target, not much of Slade's body showing, but the entire party took aim and fired together at the leader's word. Slade threw up his arms, fell back on their side of the mountain, and then slid down the slippery slope. Warner watched him with a kind of horrified fascination as he shot over the clear ice. His body struck a small pine presently and shattered it, the broken pieces of the icy sheath flying in the air like crystals. After a momentary pause from the resistance, Slade went on, slid over a shelf, and disappeared in a deep drift. "'He's out of business,' said Reed. "'I reckon we'd better go down there "'and see if he all broke to pieces.' "'They climbed down slowly and painfully, "'reaching the drift, but to their amazement, "'Slade was not there. "'They found his rifle and spots of blood, "'but the outlaw was gone, "'a thin red trail that led down a rift "'showing the way he went.' "'We hit our bear and took the bite out of him,' said Reed philosophically. "'But we ain't got his hide to show. "'Still, he's all broke up, just the same, "'cause he didn't even think to take his gun, "'and this red trail shows that we won't be bothered by him again for a long time.' "'Warner would have preferred the annihilation or capture of Slade, "'whom he truly called a rattlesnake or cobra, "'but he was satisfied nevertheless. "'He had destroyed the gorilla's power,' to harm them for a long time at least, and not a man of his had been hurt. He was sure to receive Colonel Winchester's words of approval, and he felt the swell of pride, but did not show it by word or manner.
carrying the rifle as the visible proof of victory they returned to the cove and received from Colonel Winchester the words for which they were grateful. Further proof was the failure of Slade to return and the lifting of the terrible weight which a single man had put upon them. They could now go about in the open as they pleased. The big fires were built up again and cheerfulness returned. The mountaineers brought in more food the next day and the following night Reed and another mountaineer crossed the ridge and were lucky enough to shoot a fat bear in a ravine. They dressed it there and between them managed to bring the body back to the camp. A day later, they secured another, and there was a great feast of fresh meat. That night, the weather rapidly turned warmer, and all knew the big thaw was at hand. A long, heavy rain that lasted almost until daylight hastened it, and great floods roared down the slopes. Tons and tons of melting snow also slid into the valley, and the creek became a booming torrent, they were more thankful than ever for their huts and lean-tos, and all except the sentinels clung closely to their shelter. Throughout the day the mountains were veiled in vapors from the rain and the melting snow, and after another night the troops saddled and departed, the horses treading ankle-deep in mud, but their riders eager to get away. "'We overstayed our time,' said Dick, looking back, "'but it was a good cove for us.' Our presence there tempted the enemy to battle, and we destroyed him. Then we had shelter and a home when the great storm came. A good cove, truly, said Pennington, and we shan't forget it. When they reached the main pass, they found it also deep in mud and melting snow, and their progress was slow and painful. But before noon, they met Shepard and the sergeant, returning with news that they had carried an account of the victory to General Sheridan, but that nothing had happened in the main valley save a few raids by Mosby. Shepard, who acted as spokesman, was too tactful to say much, but he indicated very clearly that the commander-in-chief was highly pleased with the destruction of the Slade and Skelly band, the maraudings of which had become a great annoyance and danger. Dick was eager to hear more, and when the opportunity presented itself, he questioned the sergeant privately. "'What do we hear from Petersburg?' he asked. "'Is the deadlock there broken?' "'Not yet, sir,' replied the sergeant. "'The winter being so very severe, the troops are not able to do much. "'General Lee still holds his lines. "'I suppose that General Grant doesn't care to risk another cold harbor. "'But what has been done here in the Valley of Virginia "'should enable him to turn Lee's flank in the spring.' "'I take it that you're right, sir. "'General Lee is a hard nut to crack, as we all know.' but his army is wearing away. In the spring, the shell of the nut will be so thin that we'll smash it. The column, after its exploit, returned to Sheridan at Winchester, the little city around which and through which the war rolled for four long years, and where two great commanders, one of the gray and the other of the blue, had their headquarters at times. But Colonel Winchester and his young staff officers rode through the streets that were faced by closed shutters and windows. Nowhere was the hostility to the northern troops more bitter and intense than in Winchester, the beloved city of the great Stonewall, which had seen with its own eyes so many of his triumphs. Dick and his comrades had learned long since not to speak to the women and girls for fear of their sharp tongues, and in his heart he could not blame them. 
Youth did not keep him from having a philosophical and discerning mind, and he knew that in the strongest of people the emotions often triumph over logic and reason. Warner's little algebra was all right when the question was algebraic, but sentiment and passion had a great deal to do with the affairs of the world, and where they were concerned, the book was of no value at all. Dick's new rank of captain was conferred upon him by General Sheridan himself, and it was accompanied by a compliment which, though true, made him blush in his modesty. A few days later, Warner received the same rank for his achievement in driving away Slade, and it was conferred upon Pennington, too, for general excellence. The three were supremely happy and longed for more enemies to conquer, but a long period of comparative idleness ensued. The winter continued of unexampled severity, and they spent most of the time in camp, although they did not waste it. Several books of mathematics came from the north to Warner, and he spent many happy evenings in their study. Dick got a hold of a German grammar and exercise book, and, several others joining him, they made a little class, which, though it met irregularly, learned much. Pennington was a wonder among the horses. When the veterinarians were at a loss, they sent for him, and he rarely failed of a cure. He modestly ascribed his merit to his father, who taught him everything about horses on the Great Plains, where a man's horse was so often the sole barrier between him and death. Thus the winter went on, and they longed eagerly for spring, the breaking up of the great cold, and the last campaign. <laughs>